Welcome to today's episode of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. This is a two-parter, and this is part one of a chat I had with Paul A. Young, a groundbreaking and inspirational chocolatier who is at the forefront of British chocolate innovation. Never the conformist, and as an alchemist, he continues to push the boundaries of taste by combining what may seem to be unusual ingredients. His passion for his craft and his cutting-edge creativity have won him numerous awards, including Outstanding Chocolatier by the International Chocolate Awards. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a real treat. Real treat. I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> chocolate. So it's always a treat to talk about chocolate rather than just eat it and make it. That's why it's a treat because it's we get you know us chefs we get locked in our kitchens in our basements and we don't see the light of day in these winter months. So it's actually nice. I'm sat in my home office, um, the last little bit of daylight on this you know early winter's more uh, evening. And we're going to talk about chocolate rather than me making. Yeah, and I'm really excited to hear about it. So tell us about yourself, Paul. So I have always been a creative person. Academically, I was, would have always said to myself, and if you'd asked me, I'd say I'm not academic, I'm very creative, I am 100% creative with music, with art, with food. And so my life went through that pattern and I picked up food as the work music and art as hobby or kind of interests, not realising that when you become a chef, you are going to listen to music all the time and be very artistic all the time. So I trained to be a chef leaving school, not knowing which direction to go in, but very early into that training, I knew I wanted to be a pastry chef. Now, this was 1989, 1990, and trying to find a pastry chef job in the northeast of England in a mining village was not going to happen. So I was a chef doing all kinds of jobs in every kind of place. I was. I worked on army barracks, in care homes, in hotels, in restaurants, and I still yearned to be in the pastry section. And it was a very, very lucky uh, job offer that I got from doing a one-week uh, agency job in Leeds when I lived in Yorkshire in Leeds in 1996 and where Land Rover were launching their discovery. And Marco Pierre White and his team were doing all of the catering for hundreds of people a day for lunch and for afternoon tea. And of course, I ended up in the pastry section and I got offered a job halfway through this contract, which um, was amazing. It was to join the Criterion Brasserie, which Marco had just opened in Piccadilly. And as a young chef in 1996, you, you just say yes. You don't say no or um, uh, uh, I might, I'll think about it. You just say yes. And I had just bought a little two up, two down house. So I rented it out to friends, moved, lived on a friend's sofa for six months. Because when you go from Yorkshire to London, your money doesn't go anywhere. But I loved luxury dining. And I, I not as a, as a customer, because I hadn't been to many places that I would call luxury dining at that time. But I loved the the dressing of the plates, the demanding accuracy of the recipes, the fact that everybody, almost hundreds of people every night, up to 350 people a night, would have this luxurious, wonderful, glamorous, shiny evening. And I would stand at the night bus stop at one o'clock in the morning after doing an 18-hour shift thinking, I can't believe I'm here. And that that kind of first experience of coming to London, working with 
world-class chefs, demanding menus, demanding turnaround of product, but with such skill and accuracy, you get hooked. You either love it or hate it, and you you last or you don't. Um, and I lasted, and I did have a few wobbles. It gets very, very exhausting. But I worked my way through, and I ended up working at the three-star Oak Room with Marco Pierre White, uh, Titanic, which I headed up one of the pastry teams there. And then I opened or reopened Quo Vardis, which Marco Pierre White had and reopened. And he opened London's first million-pound bar uh, on the first floor. And one of our, I remember when we first opened, one of our first customers was Jennifer Lopez. And I had no idea who she was, believe me. Other members of the team did. But it was the day when um, the team in the bar upstairs, the private bar, said Madonna and Guy Ritchie are in. And they would like lemon tart. Um, that, that for me was like, I can't believe I'm serving my lemon tart, the restaurant's lemon tart, to uh, Madonna and Guy Ritchie. And they came in quite regularly. It, it, it's, it's always nice when you're a chef and you love what you do and you are helping making make people's evening or experience because they're ordering your food. I know it was, some of those recipes were Marco's recipes, but when you've made it from scratch and you feel, you know that you're working in a luxury restaurant, in a high-end Michelin star style restaurant, um, and everyone's coming in for one thing, to have a great time, to eat great food, to have great drinks, great conversation. For me, that's, that's really why I did it. I liked the challenge. And I, I was proud of myself for doing it. And at that point, I hadn't even tickled chocolate, just making petit fours and a chocolate tart and chocolate pudding. But it was quite a few years later where chocolate started to seep its way into, into my career. So it wasn't, it wasn't part of my restaurant career. Wow. I mean, this is just a trip down memory lane. Because I remember going to the Criterion in 1996. You did? Yeah. I probably cooked your dessert. <laughs> no, and I remember I used to go there quite a bit. And Bjork used to go a lot. Yeah? Wow. Wasn't the room the most stunning dining room? Yeah, it, I mean, amazing. It, is it, the building's still there. The building is still there, but I don't think it's a fine dining restaurant anymore, unfortunately. But you can still go and experience the beauty of the room. Yeah. I mean, it's worth, if you, I was a tourist and I knew about it, I'd walk in, have just look up and around and walk out. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, I can remember. I mean, it was just so fast. Yeah, we were told that um, when Marco and his team moved in, it was, I think it was on by the Trust House Forte of Granada, and it was like a canteen. And that whole ceiling, this gold mosaic, and it looked like 1920s lighting, was hidden on above the floating ceiling that had been put in it was all still there so i don't know in the you know in the 50s 60s and 70s these things were all covered up weren't they you know you, you find that a lot and fireplaces taken out when actually they're architecturally stunning and thank goodness he found it so from pastry to chocolate how did that happen this happened because i think when you're a pastry chef you you love the detail you love the chemistry and like a, like a doctor or a surgeon, you can specialise in something. When you're a chef, you don't necessarily specialise in steak or fish. You might, but it's not as broad as a career. But in pastry, you can specialise, you know, you might go into sugar work, you might go into cakes, you might go into chocolate, you might go into... So there's all these different areas. And 
I'd finished working for Mark Pierre White and I did two years in retail product development just to try a new uh, way of cooking, to have ready meals of mine that I developed on Marks and Spencer's shelves and Sainsbury's shelves. And I learned so much about technical development, procurement and business. So I did that for two years. And then I went back into a restaurant and it was the team that I worked with at Quo Vardis, two years later that got in touch with me and said, We're, a few of us are back together. We've been asked to, re to open a restaurant called La Rascasse at Café Grand Prix in Mayfair. Do you want to come and head up the pastry kitchen from scratch? And I was like, of course I do. To have your own kitchen that you do the menus where you create everything. And I did that for 18 months. And it was part way through that I was watching a TV show called Good Food Live. It was on UK TV Food and it was it was hosted by Jenny Barnett. And it's basically a live one hour daily show, a bit like this morning, but on food with guests and we'd cook live. And I watched a very famous chef cook a dessert very badly. And I was annoyed. And I just I remember saying in my head, we do not need to see more rhubarb crumbles being made on TV. I'm done. And I thought, do you know what? I'm just going to do something I'm not, I wouldn't usually do. It was before I had a laptop and emails and social media and even um, smartphones. So I wrote a letter by hand to the commissioner and the producer of that show and said, I, this is my career so far. I think I could come on the show and show you something a bit different. And I got a screen test. And, and I was on the show for about seven years, obviously as a guest on and off. And my first recipe was a chocolate pasta recipe live on the show. And I did lots of other desserts in between that, but we kept coming back to chocolate. And we did like the top 10 Easter eggs, the top 10 Christmas from a pound to a hundred pound gifts. And then I started doing food festivals because if you're on TV, people want to see you. And I thought, okay, well, this is going well. And so I went freelance. I left my pastry chef job and went freelance and decided to try my hand at doing something different. And uh, while I was doing that show, I remember playing with chocolate even more because we were, we were trying other people's chocolates on the show. You know, we we're trying everybody else's. And I'm thinking, well, I'm still not really that excited about what I'm tasting. So I think I should start developing my own where they were 100% pure and natural, seasonal, handmade. Didn't have a business, didn't know if I was going to have a chocolate business, but I just was drawn to it naturally. I taught myself. I've never been trained by anyone in chocolate at all because I didn't want to make Belgian chocolates. I wanted to make a new style of British chocolate without glucose syrup, without artificial flavourings and colourings. I wanted them to be about the ingredients we have here in the UK or super fresh. So you have to buy them and eat them and you can't keep them. So very luckily on TV at the same time. So every time I would go on TV, I would talk about chocolate, doing food, doing food festivals. And then I got an opportunity. Chantal Cody, who at the time owned Rococo Chocolates, she was the queen of chocolate in London at that time, super skilled. She got in touch with me from one of the food festivals because she had a stand there and asked if I would make two handmade chocolates using Taylor's Port for her King's Road shop. Now at that point, my, like literally, I was like, oh my dot 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 I'm going to have, I've been asked to make chocolates for a chocolate shop from someone I respect greatly 
I was, I, you know, it's one of those times where you think, oh my goodness, can I really do this? And she loved them and they sold out. And she said, you need to meet somebody who's just started National Chocolate Week and the Academy of Chocolate has just been set up and they're having their first World Chocolate Awards. Your chocolates, you should enter them. So I was, no, I don't have a way to sell them, way to make them, etc. But I met this lady called Kate Johns, who'd set, helped, who'd set up National Chocolate Week, and she tasted my chocolates and went, you need to enter these into the Academy of Chocolate Awards. And so I did, I was forced to. And this is where things really started. My sea salted caramel, which was unheard of back then, won a gold award in the World Chocolate Awards, and three other chocolates won silvers. And the phone started ringing. It's that story of journalists ringing when you had to put product on their desk rather than see it on social media. And people were saying, where can I taste this salted caramel? Why would you put salt in caramel? Caramel's caramel. And I got in touch with my business partner at the time because we'd had this twinkle of an idea about chocolate business. And I rang from the awards ceremony saying, I've just won this gold award. Do you still want to start a chocolate business? Something that's not... not been in London before like this. And that's how it started. That sea salted caramel is still our biggest selling chocolate and the recipe hasn't changed. And that was probably 18 years ago now. And we started looking for premises. So it was literally like step by step, runaway train stuff. I didn't look and reference other people's chocolates at all. I only owned one chocolate book which I didn't like because it was Belgian chocolates and it was using a lot of artificial ingredients. And I, was, I just thought, this is not for me. You know, my, my pastry chef career is use fresh ingredients and make them fresh every day. I thought, well, we have bakeries that do that. We have restaurants that do that. Why can't we have a chocolate shop that does that? I used to go to Paris every January for pastry inspiration. I started going for chocolate inspiration and I saw that a lot of the small chocolate shops, if you looked th through to the back, or there were stairs down or stairs up. I realized that a lot of them were making their chocolates in-house and they had done for decades and decades. And I tried to reference somewhere in London that did that and there was nobody. There wasn't a shop where you could do that. And I didn't have any other reference point where I still don't have, or even in the UK, that many chocolatiers. It's still perceived to be either super technical or unapproachable. The chocolate today is not the same. It doesn't taste any way. The, it doesn't taste the same as it did all those years ago. And is that because it's mass produced now? When we were younger, I think when businesses were smaller, some of the, I know, which, well, I know which some, sorry, I know some of the businesses you're talking about when they were either making by hand or in smaller scale, they were probably using Sometimes a better quality chocolate, but it would have been more expensive. And when you scale up a lot and you get investors involved, potentially, um, your margins are pushed. And quite often I've seen this and I've tasted it too, so I agree with you totally, not with all of them, but quite a few, that the character that you loved and fell in love with is lost because they've bulked up and bulked up and now they're machine made. There's a little bit of finesse that isn't there maybe the way it was or the flavors aren't changed quick enough because when you've got a person with hands doing it if they come up with an idea they could make it I, used to, I do this sometimes you can come up with it today and sell it tomorrow but when you get really big 
you're reliant on volumes going on production lines and people, and you lose a little bit of that autonomy. I'm, I mean, this is why I'm not a chocolate snob. I do enjoy confectionery, which everybody knows what I'm talking about. All the Christmas chocolates, all the Easter chocolates, it's nostalgia. But for that £2, £3, whatever it is, even less quite often, it, cons- it delivers that nostalgic feel consistently. When you're paying 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 pounds for boxes of chocolates and bars of chocolate, and it doesn't deliver what you expected or doesn't deliver what you remember, then it becomes very expensive because you you go back to it because you have a memory of it being absolutely wonderful. I've found that with some of the French chocolatiers that I used to go to 17, 18 years ago that are now much bigger. and Either they haven't changed at all, which you've had them so often you're bored, or you can tell that this, that fresh flavour has gone because they now need them to travel around the world, so they've had to preserve them um, or use different chocolate or slim down the amount of chocolate they use. I think sometimes there's compromise, and if you know your products, which it sounds like you do, it's such a shame when you go back and it just doesn't give you that same feeling. Because chocolate is one of those few foods that is emotional. As soon as you eat it, it's either going to make you smile or not. It's going to melt in your mouth. It's, it's a full-on experiential feeling, and you're buying it to make yourself feel good and better or somebody else. I, I want to talk about you as an innovator and an alchemist, because <laughs> I have these visions of you in the kitchen and I've been to your shop in um, in Islington many times, and I just have these visions of you with cauldrons and things. Uh, what's your creative process? My creative process has always been learnt fluidly. I mean that because I, when you train under somebody and with somebody, and they're shadowing you all the time, you do pick up on their techniques and styles. Now, maybe I was a bit arrogant 18 years ago when I said, I'm going to make my chocolates. I was just bored of eating the same thing. And I thought, what's the worst that can happen? If I start my own way of developing and my own creative process, what can come out will either be disastrous and I'll have to change it, or it will work sometimes, or it might work all the time. And all I, all I did right back at the beginning was make sure that everything I made was fresh with real ingredients rather than a flavour drop or a, or a, a, a shop-bought concentrate or something like that. And I then opened myself up, which is quite hard when you're working seven days a week in production and you're trying to make your business work, but you pull on all of the things, all the places you've been, all the people you talk to, all the seasons, all those. And for me, it's about a feeling. So we, if I'm making Christmas chocolates, my process has always been the same. I think about that very early in the year. So it has to be March or April because it takes a long time to develop them, make the samples, decide the packaging, do shelf life. So this year we started our Christmas development in February, which is, so we we start next year's Christmas closer to the previous Christmas. And I close my eyes and I say, how do I want to feel? This year, am I wanting a traditional feeling? Am I wanting a Scandi feeling? Am I wanting a European, like German Christmas market feeling? Am I wanting party feeling because most people take out their christmas chocolates 
at a party, a gathering, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, after dinner, before dinner, or because it's Christmas Day, they've opened a sparkling wine and champagne for breakfast and their chocolates, because she can. And I want the chocolates, I want some of the chocolates to fit into that person's feeling and emotion. So I've all, the kitchen is, I'm constantly developing while production's going on because I talk to my team while I'm doing it. I used to keep it to myself because it started with just me and then one other chef, then a head chocolatier and me and a chef. And it kept, you know, building. And now I talk to my team about it and I say, what, what do you want? Because something you realise, we all get to this point, you'll either roll your eyes or smile or sigh is you get to a point where you realise that 15 years have gone past and you're not quite as relevant as you were because the people I'm employing now are 20, 21, 22 and have a completely different nostalgia than I do. And if I continually move with my nostalgia, it becomes very old-fashioned. So I ask them, what's their nostalgia? What are their parents who are my age or younger teaching them about all of their things they eat? So I realized that if I didn't involve my team and ask them to develop some products to come up with ideas, that I'd get left behind. So I've had to do what maybe I think a lot of chefs don't do because we get very protective of our recipe books and our notebooks and our ideas. And I want them all to be my ideas. I don't. I used to. I used to fear that if people came into the shop and it wasn't all my idea, that it wouldn't be authentic, but that's really, really selfish. I feel that's selfish. I felt that my team would feel more part of this business and part of the magic of making chocolates if I involved them in my creative process. And my chefs have become fantastic product developers now. They come up with ideas, and some of the ideas don't work initially, but we morph them into products that work. So now it's a collaborative thing. It used to be very insular and just me. Now it's collaborative. I, I get so wound up by that word showstopper now because if everything has to be a showstopper, we lose sight of the simplicity of the beautiful slice of Christmas cake with spiky icing. doesn't matter if you can decorate a cake or not everyone can get a fork and spike the icing up. And I still love that. That's where the difference now is a Christmas cake isn't necessarily a fruit cake soaked in brandy with all of the spices in. It's quite often any cake with festive winter Christmassy, particularly right now. We had Scandi a few years ago, but right now it's very much the European Christmas market. So gingerbready style decoration. And it's a Christmas cake. So I try, I, I try to keep some of those traditions alive by keeping it simple so that I remember it for me. But for my business, I have to look at what everyone is expecting from us and can we start something new. A few years ago, I started making mince pies, but instead of putting pastry on top, I put brownie on top and did a brownie mince pie. It... It just took it sideways slightly, still tasted like a mince pie, but it didn't have that like kind of dry pastry, then fruit middle. It was fudgy and gooey and chocolatey. So that, that kind of process of where when I talk to my team and their, their, their traditions are different, their traditions seem to be from things like Bake Off, which is being on a decade over a decade. 
So if you're 22 and you've been watching it since the beginning, that's some of those things on there, your tradition, whereas I see them as quite current or at the beginning of Bake Off, that's the things I was making with my grandma when I was eight years old. Scones every Sunday, Victoria sponge, chocolate cake, Swiss rolls, you know. So that's where it's different. It's just my team bring a modern, modern's the wrong word, kind of an up-to-date lightness to it. You know, that they, they're not scared of clashing colours, clashing flavours, clashing styles. It's very much anything goes, which I do love because I think if you're too traditional in patisserie and chocolate, that's going to get left behind a little bit. You've got to kind of mix it up a bit. I mean, it's interesting. I think years ago, did you make a Yule log type thing with chestnut in the middle with a daqua? For the shop or on TV? On TV. Um, I did do a Yule log on TV. I can't remember what it was for. I have no idea, but I made it after that. <laughs> See, I love it when someone makes something off that I've made on TV. It's great. Uh, it took me about five weeks. <laughs> yeah. This, so this is the other thing. It, the simple things that are most effective are the things that are three or four steps, you know. And But a lot, a lot for example, I'm not a big fan of dessert entremets. You know, they, they're the glazed, shiny, multi-layered desserts where there's a lot going on. I've, I've just never, it's never been my style. I've never loved it because I love, a slice of amazing apple pie or a fantastic slice of raspberry sponge or something, you know, and I can appreciate as a pastry chef, all of those type of desserts. But actually as I've got older, what I love is the very best pastry with the very best apples and the perfect sweet and tartness and the perfect creme anglaise. I find those more enjoyable and more fulfilling and they're easier to make. They're quicker Everyone has their own interpretation of it. It doesn't matter if your pastry is a bit thick or a bit thin. And this pressure sometimes to make these elaborate entremets where it's very easy to put too much gelatin or too little, temperature's not quite right, or very easy to just get one texture, but it's all different flavours. It's it's hard. You see it on Bake Off, you see it on um, uh, Bake Off the Professionals. It's challenging, but... I would say to everyone, just don't be afraid to make some of the classic. Don't be, don't think you always have to keep up with what's current. Think about what you did have and what was, what actually led to all of these recipes was what was behind us. So, how then do you come up with all these unusual flavors? I mean, is is it trial and error? And I get asked this a lot. And at the beginning, oh my goodness, yes, it was trial and error. I was trying to think at the time of making sure I wasn't gimmicky. I was very fearful of being a gimmick. And the the reason I became very creative was off the back of my product development jobs and having to think really openly. And it was the wonderful Lydia Slater, who at the time was editor-at-large of the Sunday Times Style magazine, and she was a fan of our chocolate. She came in and she said, I was trying some unusual flavours at the time, but she said, I bet you can't make Marmite work. Now, Anyone who sets me a challenge, I'm going to try it. And about three months later, I'd developed and developed and developed and made lots of recipes of a Marmite truffle. And I got it to work with a single origin Madagascan chocolate. At the time, unheard of, using water instead of dairy. So it was a water ganache. So this was 15 years ago. Um, Because milk and Marmite together is a disaster, let me tell you. But if you put water with Marmite, it just dilutes in, it opens it up. It's like using stock. Or like Bovril, you know. So 
I made them, she tried them, and she said, if I got it to work and she liked them, and I put them on for sale in the shop, she would do a feature on me in Sunday Times Style magazine, and she did. She loved them, and she wrote the Hester Blumenthal of chocolate, and that was in our first year. I, I owe her a lot for saying that, because that meant for me that people saw me as a creative chocolatier, not just another praline, rose and violet cream, caramel, you know, where you can get everywhere. And that gave me the key to basically do whatever I wanted. Not a lot of chefs, chocolatiers, pastry chefs, get that opportunity to, to, to go, okay, I can push the boundaries now. I, can st I still have to make the best champagne truffle the best classic dark chocolate truffle, the best praline, the best lemon truffle, you know, all the, the things that people want. But I can have a collection always in the business that pushes the boundaries. And that started off not too weirdly, but it was things like strawberry and basil, where before you might have just had a strawberry cream. Um, it was, um, I did a port and Stilton truffle very early on in the business. Because I was thinking about what do you eat at Christmas? You eat mince pies, port, stilton. And I just started to, that's how I started to look at my chocolates. What do we eat together that you don't see often in chocolate that can be transposed into chocolate, which is why we have things like a Bakewell tart chocolate, ginger, ginger cake and custard. I, I just started to pull in all of these desserts and puddings that I'd had as a child and as a chef and started to transpose them into chocolate, but not flavour them. Every chocolate I'd had elsewhere was flavoured. I made sure that we made gingerbread, a ginger pudding, and made a custard ganache and put them together, rather than just putting some stem ginger in and some vanilla. You know, I used to put pink pepper in rhubarb, and that's how it started. And as soon as you go heading rhubarb, and you go, oh, rhubarb and ginger's nice, rhubarb and pink pepper's nice, rhubarb and strawberries nice, raspberry, you end up with thousands and thousands of recipes or potential recipes just by then listing your next one and going, right, lemon tart, lemon posset, lemon meringue pie, lemon cheesecake. And all of a sudden you think, I thought cheesecake, well, I'll use cream cheese instead of cream because it's, it's sweet and savoury. And that's how I started to develop and that's how I, how the, the media and press really took us under their wing because we were developing these fantastic flavours that made people talk about chocolate when they came into our shops. They, people wanted to come in for a champagne truffle, but they would go, oh my goodness, why have you got Port and Stilton? Why have you got such and such? And then the conversation starts, you, become, you befriend them, there's a story, they smile, it's fun, you know. And are you going to get a rose and violet cream in my store? No, you're not, because you can get those Fortnum and Mason, and they're wonderful from Fortnum and Mason. Thank you, Paul. As I said at the beginning, this is a two-parter, so don't forget to join me for part two of my conversation with Paul A. Young. Don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes at InPursuitOfLuxury.com or on your favourite listening channel. Thank you to Intellect Books and thank you for joining us.